It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher, and your neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And I hope you and your family are safe, healthy, and well. Well, this morning, we're going to get right into it. I have a full-on civics lesson, so get ready to take notes and listen attentively. We are talking today about the Supreme Court. Yes, I know this seems like some in-depth American government's topic that you should be learning in a chair with a chalkboard or a dry erase board in front of you. But I assure you what is happening on a daily basis on the Supreme Court does have an impact on our lives. And we do very much have a say so or there are levers that we can pull to ensure that our voice is more heard in that body. It may seem to you to be a shadowy figure that there are nine people off to the side, separate from the day-to-day realities of each and every one of us that make these decisions. Sometimes they're good, and sometimes in the case of upholding the Affordable Care Act or marriage equality, you know, you can say, yay, Supreme Court, like they're upholding the rights and the laws of the land. And other times you're like, boo, Supreme Court. (laughs) If you have anything to do or have paid attention to the Citizens United case and sort of describing that corporate entities have the same rights as people or any of cases that have been defined recently, that sometimes there's a mixed reaction. And this is indicative of the Supreme Court across history, that there are some cases that have been decided that have been outright horrible. (laughs) There's a mixed history that the Supreme Court has. But then you're thinking about, Eljoy, what real impact will I have or can I have on the Supreme Court? You can't directly go out there (laughs) and talk to Supreme Court justice. You didn't elect them. They don't come before hearings before the people and you have an opportunity to talk to Justice Kavanaugh or Clarence Thomas about the decisions that they made. It's very obviously hard to remove them. They are subject to impeachment. And it's not as if you as an individual can go and start impeachment proceedings, right? What we do know is that the Supreme Court is a equal branch of government to the executive branch, which is the presidency, as well as to Congress. But there are some things that we can do. There are some levers we can pull by the people that we elect to Congress, particularly to the Senate. And that's why quite often a lot of people try to focus our efforts on making sure that we have a Senate that is representative of the people. And as you know, justices are appointed for life. So it's not as if these terms, you know, you can wait out something. Waiting out something is waiting a whole generation. So if you have an unbalanced Supreme Court, you know, that can last a very long time. So I brought someone to have a conversation 
conversation with us about the Supreme Court to give you a basic civics understanding of the Supreme Court, their power, their responsibility, and talk about what actual Supreme Court reform looks like. And then lastly, what our power is to influence change in this situation. And so the person I brought, I've actually been waiting to get him on the show for a very long time, but Ellie Mistal is joining us. He is at The Nation right now. He's actually The Nation's justice correspondent, and he covers the courts, the criminal justice system, and politics. He was the force behind their column objection. He's a graduate of Harvard and Harvard Law School. Don't hold that against him. Um, and before he was there, he was executive editor of Above the Law, and he's frequently been on, I think we've only been on a couple of times on MSNBC, and he's also heard here on SiriusXM. So grateful to have him on the show. Ellie, thank you so very much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. So I've been trying to get you on the show for a very long time. And as your stock is rising in these streets, I'm so glad you responded to my DM. Is it? I don't know that I want that, right? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't want all these crazy white people to know me. That's not great. That, I mean, that's how I feel as well about like not doing too much. You know, do, it was like, I don't want to do too much like in these streets and then have people like at my office protesting me because you know, I said something that was true, but rubbed your feathers the wrong way. I just want to go to the CVS in peace, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I ask every guest who's joined us for the first time, I want to hear, and the listeners want to hear, the story of your first civic action. So my father was involved in local politics on Long Island. He was a campaign manager for a lot of county legislatures, and then he eventually ran for the legislature himself, and he won. And then he later had to resign in disgrace uh, over charges of election fraud because um, he committed election fraud. So, you know, just a, facts. It's <laughs> a long arc there uh, with my family history. But so my first civic action is, you know, hopping on my bike and handing out mail, you know, riding around the neighborhood, handing out mailers for my dad's political candidates, you know, like, you should vote for Maxine. She's great. Like that as like, you know, seven, eight year old kid on a bike. So, so I've canvassed and petitioned and handed out literature at train stations. And I hated all of it, which is why I write and I don't run for office. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we can't see you out on the streets campaigning for a candidate anymore. <laughs> oh, hell no. Yeah, no, it's just, it's, that well got poisoned for me like way early on. <laughs> it's hard work. And like, I love, I appreciate the work that canvassers do so much because I've done that job. And that is a hard job, just walking up to strangers' houses in the middle of the day. They don't want, most of them don't want to talk to you. Half of them, like, actively are angry that you're there. And trying to advocate for your candidate, that is hard, hard work. And I appreciate all the people who can do it and do do it. I, that. That, that is not work that I can do anymore. <laughs> well, shout out, yes, to all of the canvassers and election day workers. And particularly for those of you who have been doing this, at least in the recent election, had to do this in the middle of a pandemic. And is you talking about not wanting to right? approach people, you as a canvasser not wanting to do that, and how you do that in a safe environment, particularly given the pandemic we're experiencing. We just saw with the elections, at least the 
this week in New York, but going into November, as people will be gearing back up for the presidential and shout out to the canvassers and the campaign workers who are thinking of how to campaign and how to engage voters during this time. I can tell you from personal experience that it was a hard road ahead, but I want to move to the topic of why I wanted you here. So as you know, on Sunday Civics, we seek to educate using the current political landscape to give people, you know, a context of how the levers of government and civics overall move. And one particular piece, this is actually a second part of a four part of the courts (laughs) that we're doing (laughs) on the show because there's so many different levels. But one, I believe that people have the greatest misconception, either misconception or don't know is that of the Supreme Court. It seems for most people, this distant, shadowy group of people who make decisions that are random and they really don't understand because at some point you can be like, yay, the Supreme Court, when the case of the gay marriage ruling or upholding Affordable Care Act or things of that nature. And then other times you could be like, boo, the Supreme Court, when they <laughs> gut the Voting Rights Act or in recent cases that we've seen the, the courts do. So I think people don't have a particular grasp on that and also because they don't directly interact with this body. So let's start from the beginning. Give us a context, if you will, or our listeners a basic civics understanding of the Supreme Court. Happy to. And this is, the, you know, as opposed to gathering signatures in front of a supermarket, like I made this my life's work instead, right? The Supreme Court is the third branch of government. And I always start there because people understand how important the other two branches are, right? People cover the other two branches and talk about the president and the Congress. The Supreme Court is a co-equal branch of government with those other two. It is just every bit as important as those other two. It is every bit as constitutionally required as those other two. And it is arguably the ultimate check on both of the other two branches. So it's super important and nobody talks, not nearly enough people talk about it. That's number one. The second thing I like to point out is that the constitution, while doing a great job of giving rules and regulations for how the Congress is supposed to act and the president's supposed to act, the constitution is incredibly silent about what the Supreme Court is actually supposed to do, right? It basically just says, hey, we're going to, in Constitution Article 3, um, we should have a Supreme Court. Congress will figure out what that means. Peace. Like, that's it. <laughs> the power of the Supreme Court is not constitutionally described. The number of justices on the Supreme Court is not constitutionally described. All it says is that the justices will be appointed for life, essentially. It doesn't say how many or the qualifications or anything like that. I like to always, like, at cocktail parties, thrill non-lawyers by reminding people that you don't actually have to be a lawyer to be on the Supreme Court. Mm. Like, literally, just anybody could, and, anybody and- appointed could, could do it. Doogie Hauser could be on the Supreme Court. Nobody, <laughs> like, that would be fine. Uh, so, so, it's, so it's just as constitutionally important as the other two branches of government, but it is not as constitutionally fleshed out as the other two branches of government. The branch of government that has fleshed out what the Supreme Court is in our system is the Supreme Court. Um, the Supreme Court has, um, you know, in the Hamilton, he has that song, I wrote my way out. Like, the Supreme Court wrote its own mandate, essentially, right? Um, its power to review the constitutionality of um, laws passed by Congress and signed by the president, that was invented by the Supreme Court itself um, in an 1801 case called Marbury v. Madison. Like, that that was not a thing that's in the Constitution, right? Um 
the reason why I point that out is because it's important to understand that the way the Supreme Court is supposed to work is off of something called precedent. Um, in our legal system, we give laws uh, force and effect, credibility, um, if they are old, essentially, right? Um, we expect the Supreme Court to, in almost every case, follow the laws as it has interpreted the laws in the past. Um, there is a, a, a legal theory that 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 that, uh, that uh, we like finality in the law, and we like for the law to be as unchanging as possible because we like to know what the law is going to be in the next day, right? Like, and, and people can understand that. Like, I need to know, you know, is this illegal or not, or not? Right? I need to know whether or not I can like take off my shirt and run run in the street because if I can one day and I can another day, well then I can't. Who can live at that speed, right? So. Um, so we, we expect the Supreme Court to follow precedent, but that means so many of the rules, so many of the regulations um, that we think of in the society as constitutionally mandated are actually uh, interpretations of law made by the Supreme Court, right? So, I mean, you can pick, pick, a, pick an issue. Like, honestly, pick First Amendment, Second Amendment, pick any issue that you want. How that issue kind of impacts people on the ground, how that issue affects your day-to-day -day life is most likely because of how the Supreme Court has interpreted a law as opposed to the black letter textual statute or constitutional provision that they're looking at, right? Um, one, of the, one of the ones that I think is, is easy for people to understand is the Constitution says in like four or five places, um, everybody is uh, entitled to due process of law. And we all think, oh, due process, that means I get a hearing or a trial or... Da, da, da. No, don't. And the difference between if you get a hearing or if you don't get a hearing um, has nothing to do with that text, due process of law. It has everything to do with how the Supreme Court interprets due process of law, right? So if the Supreme Court says, like, yes, everybody gets due, due process except brown immigrants. Well, suddenly... <laughs> Um, immigrants, to, you know, new people to this country don't have the same due process rights as, you know, white Anglo-Saxon people from this country, right? So, so that, that's one of the easy ways to understand how much the Supreme Court can really affect our day-to-day -day lives. And then the last civics point that I will make is that these people are completely unaccountable. They are not elected, they're not elected officials. They are appointed for life and they can only be removed through impeachment, which is the same process that we just saw happen for Donald Trump, right? Like, like that, that, that same process of Congress voting and then having a hearing in front of the Senate where they have to vote to, con to convict um, the, the person is the only way to remove a Supreme Court justice for their entire lives. So it is critically important that we understand who is doing the appointing, who is doing the confirming and what kinds of people are being elevated to Supreme to the Supreme Court because once they're there, they wield power for a generation. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, L. Joy Williams, here on SiriusXM Urban View, Channel 126. And we are talking to Ellie Mistal about the Supreme Court. It's the civics lesson that maybe you didn't get in American government class. So I'm going to return back to the conversation with Ellie for us to learn more. 
So I want to step back a second because that I think that was a, a, a great overview and highlights for me a number of instances that have always been a bit troubling for me about the Supreme Court. The first one, as me and my trustee constitution and bill of rights that I keep on hand all the time as a (laughs) civics teacher, right? So first your point about that they're really, uh, the Constitution establishes the court, but it, it actually doesn't it give Congress the power to determine how it's organized and what it's made up. For instance, you mentioned right now we have nine members and that has been the, the going thing, but it's not required that we have nine members or even that we couldn't have more. Correct. Absolutely. The, the current number of uh, justices was set by the Judiciary Act of 18. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, <laughs> we, we, we get it. We get it. We get it. Uh, uh, Post-Civil War um, Judiciary Act, uh, which set the number of justices at nine. I think at the founding there were six, and at one point there was as many as ten, and now we're at nine. Um, And we could be at 11 tomorrow if Congress passed the law. You don't need a constitutional amendment to do that. You don't need – all you need is Congress pass the law, the president signed it, boom, 11 justices, or 12. Or 19. My, my, my preference would be 19. Right. Uh, uh, so, yes. Yeah, so the number of justices um, is not defined by the by the Constitution. And particularly um, you mentioned about it being a co-branch of government. And we do spend a lot of time talking about the presidency and about Congress. And I've done, you know, greater in-depth conversation, particularly talking about how we've expanded the power of the presidency since its existence and how Congress itself has weakened itself by sort of granting certain things to particularly the presidency but they have I mean correct me if I'm wrong Congress hasn't done that much in terms of the Supreme Court whereas we've given a lot of power over certain time to the executive branch Congress hasn't done the same for the Supreme Court no but the Supreme Court has done it for for itself right and And that's a problem is it not (laughs) well huh funny that you should say that this (laughs) This is actually uh, uh, in the before times. And by before times, I mean before Donald Trump ripped the mask off the Republican Party um, and and exposed it for the kind of collection of racism and white supremacy that I believe it's always been, but Trump really has made that obvious. Before that, the debate between allegedly liberal uh, Supreme Court watchers and allegedly conservative Supreme Court watchers was exactly this issue how much power should the Supreme Court have? Should the Supreme Court basically do everything it can to find a way to interpret laws that Congress passes as constitutional, as legal, and as, and as right? Or should the Supreme Court be kind of the last bastion of defense for minority Rights, and I say minority rights in a in a, in a numerical sense um, more than anything. The other two branches of government are subjected to popular will. You know, Congress elected every two years, President elected every four years, uh, Senate elected every six years. These people swing; they have to put their finger in the air and figure out which way the wind's blowing. Because the Supreme Court is protected for is 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 uh, appointed for life, they are protected from the popular will. And there is an argument that they that because of that protection. Well, they should be the people who protect the the minority from being overrun by the tyranny of the majority, right? Um, That is a debate. And so, and it comes up all the time, for instance, every civil rights act, right? Every, every time we get civil rights, it's, it's, it has uh, in a large part been 
a popular, you know, state, let's say Mississippi, being like, you know, saying something horrible, and the Supreme Court saying, no, 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 the Warren Court saying, no, 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 um, there are going to be, you know, protection of minority rights here, right? There was this time in our history from like 1970-something until about 1979 <laughs> where the Supreme Court was, you know, a protection of minority rights. Um, that's now flipped around a little bit, though, right? Now, a lot of times the minority rights that are being, that the Supreme Court is trying to protect is the minority position that, like, gays shouldn't be treated like people. Or the minority position that black people shouldn't really be allowed to vote, right? All of these... Or that corporations are people. Or that corporations are people. <laughs> um, so so it, so it kind of ebbs and flows, but, but one of the core arguments between a generally liberal person and a generally conservative person is this question of how the legal term of art is activist. How active should the Supreme Court be in striking down laws of Congress that they find unconstitutional? So I go back to my arguments with my professor back in college about how the Supreme Court sees and who who they are fighting for, right? If you think of an individual justice on as each case is presented before them, what are, from what position are they viewing their interpretation? Is it about upholding this American exceptionalism of the founders who crafted this document and this document is holy law and cannot be adjusted to change, although the actual text says it should be changed to meet, but, but you know, whatever. Um, Or is it about the people that they are viewing and sort of the interpret? So I go back to that same question and that same debate with my professor about who should the Supreme Court justices be thinking of when they are listening to cases, reviewing cases and making a decision? Is it based upon, again, this text that cannot be, you know, is holy and can never be changed or adjusted? Or is it focused on the people who live with in um, that place? So I have two answers for that. One, and I think most legal scholars and lawyers would agree with me, although very few act this way. Number one, the Supreme Court needs to treat each case as an individual case and not a larger fight in this ideological battle, right? Um, the, the, one of the only rules that we have for the Supreme Court is that they have to hear what's called actual cases or controversy controversies. That's why you can't, you don't have like uh, advisory opinions from the Supreme Court. You don't, you, you never see like Congress say like, hey, Supreme Court, do you think this is legal or not? They never, they're not allowed to, they're, they're literally not allowed to do that. They're not allowed to give you that opinion. They're only allowed to deal with the case when there's an actual live issue. So a law has been passed and there's a victim or a plaintiff and now they can decide, right? And I think that the it's important to always remember that these are actual cases. The more I feel the law is better off, the more it hones in on the particulars of each individual case, as opposed to looking at each case as a proxy for this kind of long-term culture war, ideological battle between the two sides. Um, I think we get better law, actually, when when we focus, when we pin down on the details of the case. So that's number one. Who are they thinking about? Well, they should be thinking about the plaintiffs and the defendants. Like, that's who they should be thinking about. Do they? <laughs> no. <laughs> Come on. This is, <laughs> this is the NFL, right? This is, 
you know, they don't, uh, most of the time, they don't give a good goddamn, and, and quite frankly, most of the time, I don't give a good goddamn about the individual people involved, right? You know, when I hear that this, you know, bigoted cake baker doesn't want to bake a cake for a gay couple, I, I, I'm I, like, this is about gay rights. I do not care about the baker or the candlestick maker or whoever, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> and, and most justices are like that. So then that kind of gets to your second question, like, what? What is, what is the standard of interpretation, right? Now, liberals and conservatives have two kind of different views on this. Conservatives, the current ones, this wasn't always true of the conservative party, even in my lifetime, but it has now become orthodoxy on the right, believes in an interpretation of the Constitution that first looks at the actual text and sees if they can determine if the text is clear. Just side note, the text is never clear. That You go to law school to learn for three years how any word is not clear. I mean, I live long, I'm old enough to remember when Bill Clinton debated the definition of the word is, right? <laughs> the text is never clear, but anyway. They say like, oh, the text is clear. And if the text isn't clear, then they, they they look towards the original intent of the law as it was defined by the people who wrote it. So if you're looking at the First Amendment, they're going to go all the way back to the founding. If they're looking at the 14th Amendment, they're going to go all the way back to the Civil War, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, they they say that this, now, they say that this is the right way of interpreting the Constitution, and ha, 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 it just so happens that every time you do that, Republicans win. Isn't that amazing? Every time you look at the original intent of the Constitution, turns out the Republican Party is right. Who would have thought? Um, that's the conservatives. The liberals tend to view the Constitution, I think this is what you were alluding to, as kind of a living, breathing document. We should interpret the laws as we understand them today, not as it was understood, you know, 150 years ago. Um, if you're talking about the Second Amendment, the right to own a semi-automatic tank is quite different than the right to own a musket, and we should understand that. Right? Um, the liberals, I think, suffer from a lack of ideological uh, clarity is not the wor right word, but lack of ideological cohesion. Uh, the conservatives have like a good slogan and a good tagline, and a good way to make Republicans win all the time. Um, liberals don't really have that, and it's partially because of what I started with. One of the things to me that really defines a more liberal judge versus a more conservative judge is that liberals tend to look at each case in controversy as a particular case or controversy. They look at the particulars of the issue, and that kind of lessens the ideological cohesion on the left uh, as opposed to the right. Yeah. One, I mean, one could uh, argue, and this has been, you know, I used to make this joke about the Second Amendment that, you know, the Second Amendment entitles you to a musket and not, you know, a semi-automatic weapon, right? But even thinking of the interpretation of that, of the original intent was to, you know, one, we didn't have like, you know, an army. And so, the, you know, the ability to, you know, gather people to fight back against tyranny was necessary. But then also, you know, because we, the, the founding was based upon, tyranny right that the, the right of people to be able to protect themselves from that ever rising again one could argue right that black people have the right um, and more than anybody um, to have that protection because of the historical abuse that black folks have experienced particularly from law enforcement and other government entities well, I mean, look, I haven't had enough drinks to make this argument fully, but, you get, <laughs> but I, I, I am always pretty close. I'm always like two tequila shots away from basically arguing that no law, no constitutional amendment made before 1865 applies to me because I didn't get a goddamn set. 
right? <laughs> and so <laughs> one of my theories of constitutional interpretation is that the amendment that matters is the 14th Amendment. Absolutely. That is the amendment that does the work of extending due process rights to me and people who look like me and my family. That is the amendment that does the work of making me a full citizen. That is the amendment that protects me from all the racist bull crap that was in your, your racist constitution from the founding, right? And so any interpretation of the constitution for where I sit has to be strained through a full, deep understanding of what the 14th Amendment is. I like to call the 14th Amendment the Constitution 2.0. Mm, yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's an important point, particularly as we talk about the Supreme Court, because if you do an American government class or a civics class, there are obviously all of these decisions that were made from the Supreme Court that we would deem backwards now, but they were precedent. They were law at that time. And quite frankly, a number of those old bad laws that the Supreme Court upheld sometimes reappears in modern conversations and modern arguments. And so what do you do with a entity that still has and still uses and, and lawyers sort of still using those kinds of bad, what we would call bad decisions in current times? No, quite frankly, Joy, this is a this is a problem, I believe, that, that all African-American, especially that all African-American law students have to confront at some point. As I said, the Supreme Court values precedent. The, the law doesn't work without precedent. We, we, we have to have a respect for decisions that were made in the past in order for the entire system to work. However, any black person, especially any black person that has gotten themselves all the way to a law school, knows straight up that some presidents were just wrong, right? That's, that, that, that if we always upheld precedent, they'd be in chains. And so there's always, I think for African-American law students, there's always that tension where the kind of professors and the establishment, they're saying like, respect president, respect president. And you, you gotta be able to sit there and wait, well, not always, right? <laughs> respect president when it's right. And once you pull yourself out of that, once you say we only respect precedent that is good, that is morally valid, that is, you know, whatever you wanna put it, you fundamentally oppose yourself to basically the legal establishment. You, 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 so, and, and that happens to law students, you know, happened to me my first semester one all year, happens to different black law students at different times in their lives and their careers. But I think it does pretty much happen to everybody where, where you kind of like end up being anti-establishment simply because you remember that the moral, um, the moral uh, outcome of certain oh, Supreme that. Court decisions is every bit as important as the legal outcome. Of certain decisions. Yeah. How can it be that you love the most Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, L. Joy Williams, here on Sirius XM Urban View, Channel 126. So I want to go back um, to some of the phrasing that people may hear about the Supreme Court and give definition or define what pe what that means to folks. Off, All quite right. often, Lightning round. All right. Yes. Quite often, we hear the phrase, the court of the last resort. What does that mean? That means what I was saying before about how they are they they become the minority protector, right? The the numerical minority protector. If you cannot win um, in popular elections, if you are being overrun by a tyrannical majority, the Supreme Court is your last best hope to protect your rights over 
the screams and shouts of the, of the majority. Can Supreme Court decisions be appealed? Nope. No, no. That That's important to understand. The Supreme Court, what the Supreme Court says is law because there is nobody else to talk to. If you do not like a Supreme Court decision, there are two, cha- you have two choices. One, pass a congressional law explicitly overturning the Supreme Court opinion if it's about a statute. Two, pass a constitutional amendment specifically overturning Supreme Court opinion if it is uh, if it is illegal, if, if it's a constitutional interpretation, right? So like arguably what the, let's say the pro-life side, arguably what the pro-life side should have spent the last 30 years doing is trying to get popular support for a constitutional amendment to outlaw abortion instead of what they have been doing for the past 30 years, which is just trying to find conservative justices who will ignore press mm-hmm. So uh, the conservatives don't ask me about their legal strategies. <laughs> well, to that point, I did have a, a question about that because the other thing that people talk about are, are the courts being politically weaponized, and particularly in a Supreme Court standpoint, as you refer to um, abortion rights, that is one in which often described to people that a number of cases end up being brought in order to make it back to the Supreme Court to revisit this issue. Explain how that. That happens well first of all i would argue and i'm a little bit off the off the out out of the center here but i would argue that the supreme court has always been politically weaponized it's just that white people didn't notice it until 30 years ago. dred scott decision 1857 said a black man had no rights that a white man was bound to respect that's politically weaponized to me but <laughs> but white people would say that it wasn't right that was just law right um, so it was only in the 70s with the war in court, with these decisions about abortions and civil rights and whatever, that white people said, oh, it's weaponized. Now. Oh, man, shut up. But anyway, uh, sorry, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> the question is how the Supreme Court is weaponized, which you answered, but particularly using an example of abortion rights, how that is used in lower courts with the hopes of getting back to the Supreme Court to revisit this issue. Yeah, so... One of the things that's happened is that because the Warren court was so kind of effective at extending rights to people who have been traditionally denied them, women, um, people of color, so on and so forth, um, the right wing of the country kind of learned that in order to get lasting change, in order to, to bring back Jim Crow, in order to, 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 to put women back in the kitchen, you had to have the Supreme Court, right? You couldn't just do it with statutes and acts of Congress and electing your presidents. You had to have Supreme Court justices, right? Um, then, so they, they kind of figured that out in kind of late 70s, early 80s. And then Reagan elected a bunch of, uh, appointed a bunch of judge, justices. And a lot of them flipped on them. Like a lot of, a lot of the Republicans that Reagan appointed ended up kind of being either like actual liberals or like very moderate, you know, centrist kind of people and not rock ribbed Republicans. And that just, that, that just made Republicans crazy. Like that, that just, that, that just lost, they just lost their mind at that point. Um, and started kind of demanding that only the most kind of hardcore partisan um, conservatives be elevated uh, to the level of, of Supreme court judge. And then they kind of figured out, well, if we're going to do that for the Supreme court, we might as well do that for all the other lower federal courts. Um, we've been focusing on the Supreme court and that's, that's appropriate. But remember there's an entire federal uh, judiciary um, that is appointed in the same way that the Supreme court is appointed, appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate that goes all the way from like, you know, the, the, 
Chief Justice John Roberts to the federal district judge in your town um, who is in, in charge of, let's say, uh, uh, handling voting voter discrimination cases, right? Um, and so the conservatives have realized that they want to have their guys, and it's almost always guys, it's almost always white guys, they want to have their guys throughout the judiciary in order to uphold and support the Republican agenda. So they, and, and they, and they, and that, that, that's smart, quite frankly. Um, the Democrats have been real, real slow on the uptake on this issue. Um, they, Democrats keep acting like, we just want good judges, not liberal conservatives, good judges. Man, conservatives are like, no, nah, we want some conservative judges. Oh, so my, um, my position of, so my position, that's very much my position is just like, I don't believe it should be balanced either. Like, I don't think it should be extreme this way or that way. We need balance. We, that's that's a that's a pie in the sky. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah okay. So the, the analogy that I've used: if there is an elephant on one side of the seesaw, standing in the middle of the seesaw and saying like, "We're about," that does, does nothing. You need to put your own donkey or you know, <laughs> eight donkeys on the other side of the seesaw, and that's how you get balance, right? Like the the conservatives have have shifted, have gone so hard right. They've shifted the the Overton window here um, to such an extent that simply appointing the best centrist judges you can find that that's that's unacceptable at this point. So like you know I disagreed with uh, for instance uh, President Barack Obama when he nominated Merrick Garland. Obviously I supported Merrick Garland as opposed to nothing right. or <laughs> Gorsuch right. But I I, didn't, I thought Garland was entirely too centrist for what the moment called for mm -hmm. Garland was not the opposite of Scalia. You know, we need who, who was the person that he might have replaced. Um, we need to start nominating Democrats need to stop nominating, start nominating actual liberals, actual hardcore progressive people to balance the crazy conservatives that Republicans have successfully infused throughout the judiciary. Mm. And we've got some great candidates, you know, like, don't don't give me Merrick Garland. Give me Sherilyn Eiffel, uh, yes. you know, uh, head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Uh, give me her to, to balance out um, the Neil Gorsuch's and the Brett Kavanaugh's of the world. Like, that's who I want to see. Right. Uh, give me Pam Carlin, who a lot of people saw during the impeachment hearing, just tearing the Senate to shreds with her intellect and wit and, you know, an education. Give me her. Don't give me some milk toast. White man who, like, well, you know, the, the toast, is over. Milk toast white men get a lot of privileges. <laughs> like, <it's laughs> hard, like, you can find them anywhere um, <laughs> in any position. So, ultimately, the another question is whether or not the court can be reformed. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, as as we said, the the Constitution is relatively silent on what it does on what it has to, you know, a number of justices, what it has to do. Um, and there are tons of, uh, of ways to reform it. Um, I've written in the nation about this very subject. Um, <laughs> well, uh, one look, particular piece I read about was talking about the transparency of what the court does, because traditionally there are not cameras allowed in the decisions. They just recently, within a number of years, I believe, released in certain cases, not all, the audio of actual discussions. And you have argued before that you kind of agree that sort of having that around-the-clock coverage would sort of produce a lot of political grandstanding from a different size, which we see in hearings happen all the time. You know, quite whether it's Republicans or Democrats, sometimes I'm watching it and I'm like, I get it. Okay, the camera's on you. Fine. 
can we get back to the like, can we get back to the issue at hand here? So is this argument of like, yeah, you don't want to create another like court TV situation, but at the same time, there needs to be greater transparency about what is happening on the court from an ongoing basis. Yeah, my my official position on cameras in the courtroom is that I think putting cameras in the courtroom would do all of the harms that all of the people say they would do. And those harms are worth it. It would be terrible. There would be grandstanding. There would be stupid. There would be stupidity and grandstanding all throughout the, the court if you put cameras in the courtroom. And yet, we still need cameras in the courtroom because the people get get to know, should get to know what happens in again the third co-equal branch of government. Like we just have to deal with the fact that cameras will make people stupid because people deserve to see what's actually going on. So I, I'm for cameras in the courtroom, even though I agree it's. It, there will be downsides to that. But look, my, I have two main reforms. One, straight up expand the number of justices like that. Not just because Mitch McConnell stole a Supreme Court seat from Barack Obama. Not just because the Republicans nominated and confirmed an alleged attempted rapist who belongs closer to jail than on the bench. But because nine is nine is a limiting number in a in a plural in a plural society. We should have more representation on the court for everybody. We should have more law schools represent. Do you know, most people do not, there are nine Supreme Court justices that represent two law schools, mm. Harvard and Yale. Every single person on the Supreme Court went to either Harvard or Yale. That, as a Harvard grad, let me tell you, that's ridiculous. That's bad. <laughs> that is bad news, <laughs> all right? Um, we should have more, rep- and you can't get more representation uh, and more diversity, both um, ethnic, gender, and intellectual diversity, you can't get that with nine. 19 would be a much better number for that. So my, my two main reforms are reform the number of, ju- expand the number of justices on the court and have ethics rules. One of the things that people usually are surprised when I tell them, the Supreme Court is the only court in the country that operates without ethics guidelines. Every other court, every other federal court, state court, whatever, has, you know, their rules of what a, what a judge can do and what a judge can't do. Can a judge talk to you on Facebook? Yes, no. The Supreme Court, no guidelines. They, mm-hmm. they, they make it up for themselves. They have no guidelines for recusals, right? So like Clarence Thomas's wife uh, is a, a big time conservative lobbyist. She lobbies on cases that end up before her husband's court. In any other court in the country, Clarence Thomas would have to recuse himself from those cases, but not the Supreme Court, because there are no rules for when Supreme Court justices have to recuse themselves. They can make it up as they go along. Having actual ethics rules to to apply to the Supreme Court, especially perhaps in issues of sexual harassment, mm-hmm. you know, especially in issues um, of of self of self dealing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, would be would be crucial, and I think would do a lot for not just transparency and, and good government and whatever. Would do a lot to expose what the conservative party has become um, when it comes to the kinds of people that it nominates to the to the highest court in land. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, I would ask because for those who are listening, right, they hear all um, that we are describing in terms of the court and reform is necessary. And, you know, not just on the Supreme Court level, but as you mentioned, further down. But what real power do we as individuals have to influence this reform or this change? Is this, you know, is the only resort to press against Congress to do this? 
not even Congress, it's just the Senate, right? Um, you, you ha we have to elect senators who are on our side about these issues. But when we say that we don't have a lot of power, I would simply point out that one of the great successes of the conservative movement in my lifetime has been the Republican ability to, to tie these social culture war issues that their base cares about directly into the Supreme Court. I am not of the opinion that Republican voters are smarter than Democratic voters. In fact, I am of the opposite of it. However, you can go to any diner, truck stop, whatever in this country. You can find any MAGA hat, toothless yokel in this country, and he will tell you that he's got to vote for Mitch McConnell because Mitch McConnell is going to put the right justices on the court, stop them queers from kissing on each other. There's, he will tell you, Cletus will tell you that. He has no idea what the Supreme Court does or why, or, or, or any of the things that we've talked, he has no idea about any of the things that we've just talked about, but he knows that he needs to vote for Republican senators to have his culture war issues be represented. The Democrats have failed embarrassingly to make that connection for our base voters. Mm -hmm. So if you care about climate change, for instance, which is something that lots of Democrats care about. You don't know that you will get nothing on climate change if you allow Republicans to run the Supreme Court. Because all of their deregulation stuff, all that all that stuff that sounds like it's just about banking laws and whatever. No, no. That's all about uh, ruining the power of the EPA to ever do anything. That's all about ruining the power of the federal government to ever bring corporations and polluters to heel. Right? It's a one-to-one -one connection, but most Democratic voters don't know that. If you want to do anything on gun regulation, anything at all, you have to have uh, liberals on the Supreme Court. Because if you don't, you'll just get a slew of these conservative pro-gun lobby decisions that eviscerate any attempt at reasonable gun reform. So Democrats need to do, Democratic leaders, Democrat establishment need to do a better job of making the one-to-one -one connection for Democratic voters on how important the Supreme Court is and how that's why they have to do things like vote for Hillary Clinton over Jill Stein, right? They, they, you just have to, I, I have heard people, and I'm, and I'm not joking, I have heard people say that they're not going to vote for Joe Biden because blah, 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 blah whatever. Um, and maybe the Democrats just need to lose another election before the revolution can happen. Are you, do you have any idea what happened? Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 87 years old. Stephen Breyer is 81 years old. It is unlikely that these two will make it through another Trump administration. You think the Supreme Court is bad right now when it's 5-4 conservative to Democrat. What do you think is going to happen when it's 7-2 for a generation? Because again, these people are appointed for life. There's nothing we can do there's nothing that we that we have that we like in the next 30 years that we can get through if the court is seven to two conservative and Democrats just don't do a good enough job explaining that to people, mm. which is why I have a job, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is and as as I mentioned, this is why I wanted to bring this conversation to those who listen to the show to understand that context. And I think you provided very succinctly what the, the power is of this branch of government and what's at stake for those of us who believe that we can tune it out and that it doesn't have any direct effect on our politics, on our day-to-day -day lives. One can argue, and many have argued before, that, you know, the presidency doesn't have an effect on your direct everyday life, the state, you know, state 
government does, and that's true. But we can also see how having a idiot as a president does affect your everyday life in that sense and does impact whether or not you have a very liberal or progressive state legislature and governor or not, right? Think about New York, right? You know, very uh, somewhat progressive, even though people think all of New York is New York City. It is not. We do have another places of the state um, in Long Island, upstate, sort of a, a very diverse political populace. But at the same time, even having a governor who is, who says he's a, a Democrat, you know, sort of, and, and says he's a progressive and operates in that. You can see the direct impact that having an idiot as a president has on the state of New York, particularly in a pandemic situation. It has an impact in terms of our economy. It has an impact in terms of the wealth and the well-being of our people. Even when you have a local and state government that it, you know, you believe that sort of creates a buffer between national politics. The same thing with the Supreme Court in that, yes, you may have uh, and believe that you have insulated yourself by electing, you know, certain people in your state and local government and that the Supreme Court does not have an impact on your day-to-day life. But then you can see decisions such as corporations being people or having the same rights on how that would infringe on, you know, state laws and your day-to-day life. You see that as it pertains to the EPA and living in communities that are, you know, not being reliant on the EPA in order to protect your air and water. Um, You could see how that has an impact also on your voting rights, as many estates are highlighting voter issues and problems and discrimination all across the country, not having a fully functioning Voting Rights Act, how that has an impact on your voting rights. So the the, the Supreme Court itself, while you may not be able to see what is happening on a day-to-day basis or as these cases are decided and presided over, it does have a direct impact on your life. Can I, can I, can I get you out of here on this? Because I just want to, I just need to emphasize this point. You can see it, right? And you said it exactly right, Joy. You can see it with voting rights. A lot of your listeners will have seen and been outraged by the fact that Kentucky opened one polling place for 600,000 people in the predominantly black area of Kentucky. Many of your listeners were outraged by that. Many of your listeners are the kinds of people who are just like, what can we do to stop this, right? The time to stop that was in 2013. That happened, what we saw in Kentucky this week happened because John Roberts in 2013 eviscerated the Voting Rights Act. This is not Donald Trump's fault. This is not Mitch McConnell's fault. They're the beneficiaries. But this happened because of the Supreme Court decision in 2013. So if we don't if we don't care, if we don't focus, and if we don't vote like we care and we focus on the Supreme Court, this is what we saw in Kentucky is what we'll see again and again and again and state after state after state. Thank you so much for that point. And thank you so much for joining me finally on Sunday Civics. <laughs> thank you for asking. <laughs> and I hope you'll be back and we'll talk uh, more as the national race starts uh, uh, up or restarts again as all of these primaries are finishing up and we get to the, the real deal and then hopefully have a new administration to talk about what they ain't doing either. I can't wait to going back to just being the loyal opposition. Man. I just... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much.
Thanks so much to Ellie for joining us for this in-depth conversation on the court of the last resort, the Supreme Court, and reminding us that we actually do have some power in this situation, particularly as it pertains to the senators that we elect and will have a say-so on confirming justices, as it pertains to the president that will be recommending justices for confirmation. So if we want to make change to the Supreme Court, we have to push the Senate to do so. And we also have to make sure we have a president in place that will uh, bring up for confirmation judges that will balance out the court as it exists right now. So we'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics, with more civics lessons for you to go out and educate others about the issues we discuss here on the show. Thankful to all of you who listen. Shout out to all of you who tweet Facebook and message me about more information or suggestions for additional topics that we should discuss on the show. Keep them coming and we'll develop a whole show to address some of the things that you are outlining for us. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics here on Sirius XM Urban View. Channel 126, where talk becomes action.